What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Rappin' with Reef Bum. I'm your host, Keith Berkelhammer, and every episode, I talk with a uh, person in the reef keeping community, and today, on this episode, I am welcoming Bill Bramucci, Bramucci, sorry, Bill, I, uh, I butchered the last name, Bramucci, right? <laughs> Bramucci, yes, sir. Also known as, all right, Saw C. Jack double O on Reef to Reef, and we're going to ask you about that one in terms of how you came up with that <laughs> name. But uh, hey, Bill, man, well, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you uh, joining me on the show. Absolutely. Good to be with you, Keith. So COVID-19, obviously these are uh, very interesting times today. What, uh, what's going on in your life? How are you guys uh, handling you and your, your family? Well, it's kind of interesting because uh, both my wife and I work from home and therefore, you know, it hasn't been as huge of an impact on our day-to-day -day lives. We uh, wake up in the morning and, uh, you know, go into our respective offices and do what we were doing before. Uh, of course, the weekends are a little different, though, and we're not uh, really doing much of anything on the weekends. So I will say I have lots of time to mess with the tanks, but... You know that can be a, a dangerous thing too. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's unusual for sure. And uh, we're fortunate uh, in Arizona. Uh, we haven't uh, had as many cases here, and uh, uh, the state has begun to reopen. So uh, you know, there's a lot more cars on the road, and uh, businesses are starting to open. Which you know, hopefully, it's a good thing. It kind of remains to be seen, but uh, slowly, but uh, hopefully, surely. Maybe we'll get to some semblance of normalcy over the next few months. But uh, overall, we're doing fine, though. Yeah, I live in Vermont, and we have—I think we have under a thousand um, cases. So it, um, wow. yeah, it really hasn't been—you know—a lot of uh, cases in Vermont. I think the the uh, the concern is where uh, we border New York State. You know, I mean, up, it's upstate New York. We're not—we're uh, five and a half hours away from uh, New York City, which at one point was a real epicenter, but now the cases are going down there. So yeah, you know, things are uh, starting to reopen here in Vermont too, and, and hopefully everything will uh, get back to semi-normal. But I agree, a lot of time to spend with the tank and tinker and stuff. <laughs> it is good and it is bad. So, right. so uh, all right, Bill, before we get into it, what's, what's, uh, what's the deal with that username? Uh, what, uh, what, what's the significance well, there? That goes back, uh... That goes back a long ways. Uh, I am a, a, a big fan of uh, the movie This is Spinal Tap. I don't know if you uh, know, the, uh, but it was a parody of a heavy metal band. It was about 1980, I think, the movie came out. And in the movie, they discussed doing a musical version uh, of uh, the story of Jack the Ripper. And uh, so they were going to title it Saucy Jack. And uh, so that's where it came from, and it was the year 2000, so that's where the zero zero came from. And uh, so all my personal emails and my uh, username is always SaucyJack00 for the last 20 years. Well, you know, I guess every uh, there's always a story behind the username there, and uh, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's pretty unique. That's pretty unique. I, my username, I love to ski, so, I, you know, ski bum, reef bum, you know, why not? There you go. Yeah. Combine not? the two, Yeah. <laughs> So uh, we got a couple of uh, folks that are uh, chiming in in the chat here. We've got uh, Nick Corn. He said he bought an Oregon tort from you a couple of months back, and he and he and you sent him a free Red Planet for his birthday. So he's, <laughs> he says he's, you're such a cool guy. Ah, well, I appreciate that, Nick, and I uh, hope the corals are doing well for you. 
And uh, Kenneth Bryant says, howdy, Bill. <laughs> yeah, Ken, Ken's a good friend of mine. He's uh, between him and another buddy here, uh, Jimmy Cox. We're kind of the three amigos on uh, working on each other's tanks. And, and uh, Jimmy's uh, helped immensely with uh, some of the projects I have going with the new uh, fish room and things like that. And they both were here to save me when the, my new tank was uh, brought in because uh, the moving company assured me they'd have enough people, but three people was not enough to lift the 830-pound tank. So Whoa. I had a little backup there. <laughs> yeah, wow, that, uh, that is a big friggin' tank. So, uh, Bill, before we get into the whole story in terms of your tanks and, and, and uh, whatnot, how many years have you been in the hobby, and, and how did you get your start with uh, reef keeping? Sure. So uh, I started with uh, saltwater tanks back in about 1991. Uh, and like a lot of people, I, I got a job at a pet store and they had a fish section. And uh, I had done a lot of uh, freshwater fish uh, when I was young. Uh, my dad got me started on that. And uh, uh, they bought me a 29-gallon uh, tank when I was probably at about junior high, which I promptly put piranhas in, of course, as a young teenager would be fascinated with. Uh, so, but I did freshwater for a long time, and then I got that job at the pet store right around 1991, and uh, they wanted to implement saltwater there. So I did my own research, and uh, uh, you know, did lots and lots of reading, uh, some classic books that I still have that are just great foundations for for learning uh, the marine hobby. And they put me in charge of uh, opening the saltwater uh, uh, part of that uh, fish room, uh, which went pretty well. Now, it was all fish. It was not any corals. And, of course, back then, uh, there weren't nearly as many uh, reef tanks and such. And, and when I looked at some of those uh, things, you look at, like, Albert Thiel's book back in the day, and, and it looked like a, uh, a nuclear lab yeah. when, you know, it's diagrams for the way you should set up a tank. And I said, I'm not ready for that. So... I did fish only for a while, uh, and then in the late 90s, I just, I just decided, you know what, it's time. I, I got to do this. Uh, I, I really was much more interested in the reef and the actual corals than I was fish. And uh, so I went on to uh, Reef Central and uh, found a local club. At this point, I was living up in Minneapolis. The local club was the Twin Cities Marine Aquarium Society, TCMAS. And I got a, uh, uh, found a mentor who lived very close to me. His name was uh, David Greger. And uh, he's very well known in that area. And actually was the 2017 MACNA uh, Aquarist of the Year. So that was kind of neat. He got uh, presented with that at MACNA. But anyway, uh, he also was, was a very handy person, uh, had woodworking tools, uh, so when I decided I wanted to convert a tank over to reef, uh, he helped me build a stand for it, build a canopy, really guided me on, you know, how to light the tank, how, what type of filtration. Uh, we built a sump together out of acrylic. So that was a start. And uh, me and him did a lot of uh, reefing together. We used to buy corals online and then we'd split them, you know, so we'd get a colony in and cut it in half. And each one of us would take half and it was a lot of fun. Uh, from there, I kind of, um, uh, the tanks started to kind of explode. I ended up having a 125-gallon reef, a 55-gallon uh, octopus tank, uh, which was short-lived, and I changed that over to community tank because the octopus, well, they don't live a very long life anyway. But uh, And then I uh, uh, decided I wanted to start uh, fragging the corals. 
and uh, I wanted a, a bigger display tank. So at that point, I got a custom-made 450-gallon acrylic tank, and that went in my uh, our basement. And from there, I set up uh, basically an aquaculture facility there, called it North Star Corals, and uh, set up a website, NorthStarCorals.com, and and I was selling corals online all over the country. In fact, I sold uh, at least one one pack to uh, every state on the continental United States, which was kind of cool. Um, and fortunately, uh, it, it didn't last all that long because it got so busy that I really had to make a decision on that. I wanted to stick uh, to do that, which I was doing part time or to stick with my real full time job. And especially back then when I had uh, kids at home and, and family, uh, you know, th that needed to be supported, I couldn't really take the chance on on that kind of a risky business. So. It got to be too much, and I shut it down uh, and just continued with the hobby aspect of things. But uh, it was kind of neat because when I got back into things uh, uh, at our new house here in Arizona, uh, I went on to uh, battlecorals.com, and uh, Adam is you got some great, uh, great frags, beautiful corals. But one of the ones that he carries is uh, North Star's Corals uh, Pink Clathrata. And so it was kind of neat because I got a frag of that from him. So now I got one of my babies back from back in 2000 or so when I imported it myself. So kind of neat. But uh, now I, uh, uh, we did live in Florida for quite a while, uh, including the Florida Keys for about seven years. I had a nice reef tank down there. Unfortunately, Hurricane Irma made landfall on the island and basically destroyed our neighborhood. I kept the tank going for about a week. Uh, with a generator, but there was no gas down there, and we were without power for 28 days, so uh, it ended up, uh, the tank died, unfortunately, and uh, after that, we decided to move, so we uh, we decided to go away from the ocean, where the hurricanes are, and come to the desert, where we have a few less uh, natural disasters, and hopefully we'll be a little safer, And uh, but actually, I was actually born here, and my parents live here, and I have family uh, in California, and so it was nice to be close to family again and such, and, and we love it here. We love the mountains. We love, you know, the Grand Canyon. We love the fact that we're close to a lot of places, uh, uh, you know, in terms of other states and the things that you can see at those other states. So it's uh, it's been a great move. And then, uh, of course, moving into a bigger house meant a bigger tank. So uh, I bought a, a, a Red Sea 750, which is my current display tank, and uh, set that up. And then things have kind of grown from there. So... <laughs> Well, that uh, that's quite a uh, quite a journey there, Bill. In terms of <laughs> your uh, your your journey through life and reef keeping, but uh, yes. so you you talked about your current tank and and what you did was you shot some video for for us to kind of show the the new tank and the um, the old setup and we were just talking before the show how it uh, looks a little crowded in that room where you have all those uh, tanks, but I'm gonna um, I'm going to show this tank and, um, you know, listen, feel uh, free to narrate here if you're watching it on, uh, on yeah. YouTube. So uh, that's the new tank. It is uh, 460 gallons built by Miracles Aquariums, three-quarter inch starfire glass on three sides. It is set up in a peninsula uh, setup. Uh, it's uh, right now, it, the lighting that's over you T5 bulbs, so... Uh, in the long run, it's going to be T5 and hybrid uh, with the radians. Um, I just got all of those fish in there out of quarantine yesterday. Uh, there's about 20 damsels in there, five yellow tangs, a purple tang, and a hippo tang. 
so the tank is cycled. Down there you can see the sump, and you can also see back behind some of my uh, frag tanks. Now this is my Colorado Sunburst and Enemy tank. Uh, there's two of them in there, and they're both about a foot wide, so they don't split very often, but they are beautiful anemones. This is my current display tank. It's the Red Sea uh, Reaper 750XXL. Uh, it, obviously, you can see I'm uh, primarily into the SPS corals. Uh, these were all, every one of them was grown out of a frag. Not one, I did not purchase a single colony for this tank. So these have all grown out over the last two years, and they've been fragged many, many times. And you can see they're kind of packed in there, which is uh, one of the main reasons for the new tank. I need to get them spread out so that they can... Uh, spread their wings, stretch their legs, and, uh, and grow out into, into full-size colonies. So, uh, but it's been a very successful tank, like I said. Uh, it's been going for two years as of the end of March. Uh, now back here, that's the sump for the tanks on the left there. Those are both 40-gallon or 50-gallon low boys. Uh, the top one is a frag tank. The bottom one is a grow-out tank. So I have corals uh, that were uh, propagated from my display tank. That's the back side of the 460 right there. And then uh, I had grown out those into mother colonies. I have another grow out tank that's in a different room that you don't see here. Of course, there's the sump. It's a, a very nice custom made bash C sump. Uh, they made it 24 inches wide for me so my skimmer will fit in there, but it's not in there yet. And then on that system, I run the uh, GHL Profilux. And on this system, I run the Apex. So. I'm kind of experimenting with both to see uh, which one is more effective. And that last shot, you could see the, uh, the narrow uh, kind of hallway, if you will, between the tanks. And that's about 12 inches wide right now. Uh, I basically have to turn sideways to sneak through there, and most of my friends can't get through it. Uh, I'm a pretty small guy. Most of my friends are a little bigger than me. But um, the long run, in the long run, the plan is that I will be transferring all of the livestock from the, the current Red Sea tank into the new large tank and then that red sea tank will be coming out of there uh, at that point we're also going to be building a wall on the front of the tank so when you view the tank from the front in the hallway it will appear as an in-wall tank uh, it'll have the long or pardon me the short uh, side uh, end will be also uh, exposed so you'll have both those views the length and the front uh, i've got a removable background for the tanks so that if I want to take the background off and view it from the back, I can do that while I'm in the fish room, uh, which again will be walled off and a door will be there. So you won't see all of that equipment and the frag tanks and all of that stuff behind, and it'll look, uh, you know, it'll look more similar to your your standard in-wall type of type of tank. So I'm pretty excited about that. So so Bill, this is um, this this build up here in terms of the the new setup, and and I want to kind of like dive uh, deeper into the setup. We saw some stuff in terms of the equipment that you use, but um, in in terms of what where you're going with this and uh, what your aspirations are, tell us about your your new um, you know business. You know you mentioned uh, sure. North Star Corals, and and now you're um, you're going to launch another company, right? Yes, sir. Uh, actually, I, I technically started it on January 1st. Uh, I did uh, formerly have a, a full time that I was working remotely. Uh, that job uh, ended. I knew it was going to. It did end a little sooner than I'd hoped, but uh, uh, my uh, exit plan from that job was that I intended to go into aquaculture and corals and uh, have an online presence as well as a local presence to sell those corals. 
Uh, ideally, it would have been probably about two years down the road, but that did get escalated with uh, my, my previous position going away. So I've kind of dived all in uh, as of January and started uh, Epic Aquaculture. Uh, I have a website that is actually going to go live tomorrow, so this is good timing to be talking with you today. It's uh, www.epicaquaculture.com, or you can get there uh, by going to eacorals.com also. Uh, and right now I'm specializing in SPS corals. Uh, in particular, a lot of the what people are calling high-end type of corals, uh, a lot of the newer, you know, uh, imported corals, uh, the, the rainbow tenuous and, and some of the different uh, milliporas that have been coming in and such. And again, these are all aquacultured, pardon me, aquacultured corals. So uh, I define that by uh, if colony is imported, if it's been in captivity for at least a year, at that point, uh, if I'm taking frags off of it, I would consider that to be a captive raised coral and and those would be aquaculture and of course as they grow out in in other tanks you know go on to hopefully be aquaculture by other people so um that's what i'm i'm doing right now all of the uh uh corals that i'm selling are corals that have come from my display tank so they've been with me at least two years uh well i shouldn't say that because of course i bought corals during the <laughs> over the two years uh but they've been with me and come from other uh who uh, aquacultured them uh, and they've been in my tanks for uh, quite a while now, and the, uh, I've grown them out into mother colonies outside of the tank in my grow-out tanks. Uh, so, these are, so these are all very much uh, captive-grown corals that are, uh, I think a lot of people would agree, the captive-grown corals are definitely more resilient to changes and the different types of conditions that we all corals in. So to me, they're basically tougher than a wild-caught coral, and, and for that reason, I think more sustainable, too. Um, so... Uh, like I said, I've, I've begun that, and with that in mind, uh, of course, the, the new tank has become what's going to be more or less my coral bank. It's a separate system from all of my grow-out tanks and my frag tanks. I have them tied together because, uh, obviously, if something goes wrong in one of the systems, I don't want it to, to knock out my display tank or to, my display tank has a problem. I don't want it to knock out the uh, the aquaculture tanks and such. So. Uh, but it is, like I said, it's a backup tank for me uh, in terms of being able to, if something does happen in, in the uh, aquaculture tanks, I can go to my display tank and cut another piece and start growing it out again. So that was one of the reasons that I did want to get a much larger tank and be able to get these into there with much more room to grow. So I'm super excited about getting that up. It's always good to have redundancy, that's for sure, right? Absolutely, so, absolutely, and I believe that uh, you know when it comes to equipment, uh, it's also good to have to even on a single system for sure. Yeah, me too. Um, all right, let's show some of this eye candy in the um, in the grow out tank. This is your uh, Vivid's confetti, just a beautiful uh, coral. That is one of my favorites. It is truly amazing piece, and quite quite honestly, it's a very fast grower once it's established too. So beautiful piece, yeah. This is the uh, the TGC cherry bomb. Yep, that is a uh, classic tenuous. Uh, obviously, the the bright red uh, polyps, the pink uh, uh, branches with the baby blue tips, and uh, again, that's another fast grower once it's established. And and whenever anybody asks me, you know, oh well, what would you say is a must-have coral? It, that's always one of them that I bring up right there. So 
All right, now this this one I'm going to bring up next uh, kind of made my uh, heart skip a beat here. This is the uh, <laughs> the Rainbow Splice. Tell us a story yes, about there. that. So uh, I actually saw this on uh, Reef Builders, uh, Jake Adams' site. He when it was uh, it was originally raised by Reef Raft Canada, and uh, they grew it out from a frag that uh, was a very small frag. You can see it on that article. Uh, and basically, it's not an actual spliced co uh, coral. It's, uh, he did not take a pink uh, millipora and, and a green millipora and combine them. What it is, is it's actually a hot pink millipora that has a, uh, a, a green protein, is what they call it, or a GFP. And so basically, that green in the coral, uh, it, it just it grows uh, into the, the different tissues, the, and, and it colors it up. So I can cut a piece off of this that's completely pink with no green in it whatsoever, and it'll develop the green. And the same with the uh, the green side. If I cut a piece off of it uh, on the green side, it'll de develop the pink in it. It's really a neat piece. Um, I believe that my colony of it is probably one of the biggest, maybe in the world, if not uh, the biggest. Most of the people that have acquired it, because it is a very expensive piece, they've tended to try to get their money back cragging it up. I have not sold a single frag of this yet. I have cut two frags off of it that are my backup frags, and that's it. So right now I get a lot of requests for it, but I'm still growing it out. You know, I I, uh, I love it so much that I don't want to take the knife to it. So, <laughs> but I will have eventually pieces available on my website. Though. So here, here's the big question: How much is a frag of that going to cost? Well, right now the going rate on it is uh, two thousand uh, dollars for about a uh, yeah for about a half an inch frag. Wow. Uh, you know, it, and I did pay that, uh, you know, so, uh, and the frag that I got was tiny. I got it back in May, so it's just about a year old now. And uh, obviously, what we'll say about it is it's a very resilient coral. It's very tough. Uh, it It's never, ever suffered, I better knock on wood, but it has not suffered any setbacks. Uh, I pull it out of the tank a lot to examine it. And, and of course, if I'm to, doing some surgery on it, I've cut some growth tips off and then placed them around the bottom of the base to help it get a larger base and grow and uh, you know I'll pull it out and, and mess with it in the air and then put it back in and the polyps are right back out so you know when you're talking about investing that kind of money in a coral which you know that's a crazy price I, I fully admit it it's one of them that you can pretty much be assured that barring no shipping issues it's gonna it's gonna live for you and not be a real touchy coral and grow for you so yeah it's uh uh, now, when when I actually get to selling them, I I, I don't know that I'll charge a full two thousand dollars. That price is pretty darn high, <laughs> but you know we'll see. Right now, it's listed on my site at that price, but uh, it's there's none available anyway. So, <laughs> so we got uh, Carrier Reefer five hundred five hundred. He's he's asking what what's the name of this uh, coral? It's the RRC Rainbow Splice. What's the RRC stand for? That's uh, Reef Raft Canada. Oh, okay. So, uh, and they're, they're an aquaculture facility uh, up in Canada, uh, and of course, it's, uh, it's illegal to transport corals over the border, uh, but somebody managed to do that and, and got this coral into the United States, and I found out who that was and contacted them for, for the purchase. So, <laughs> Man, that's a score. I, you know what? For $2,000, you know, if you, if you grow up <laughs> that out into a big piece, then it's, it's well worth it. You know, you just got to... 
and, and this is yeah. going to kind of like lead into the next part of the whole conversation in terms of you know how you've had your uh, success that you've had you know with the uh, with the SPS and and um, you know so let's start with the calcium and alkalinity supplementation. What um, what do you typically do with that? Are you a, uh, a two part dosing guy or do you use calcium reactors? What's what are you uh, using for that? Yes. <laughs> yes, actually, uh, so I like to experiment with a lot of different things, and I've tried almost every part of uh, reefing. Um, so on my display tank, I use a uh, Desteco uh, automatic calcium reactor, which has been one of the best investments I've made. It's it's really a set-it-and-forget-it piece of machinery. You know, there's no uh, no messing with the bubble counter the, or, or your flow rates or anything like that. You just turn a dial and, and increase your alkalinity, you know, or decrease it if you need to. Uh, so fantastic on that setup. With the new setup uh, and, and the uh, uh, aquaculture tanks, uh, those are, again, they're on my uh, GHL system. So I decided to go with the KH director on that. On the, uh, on the display tank, I run an Alcatronic uh, to, and that, keeps my uh, calcium reactor uh, at the same levels all the time, so it's pretty steady when it comes. I would try to run my uh, DKH around 8, um, and uh, obviously stability is the key, not so much the number. I think personally anywhere between 7 and, and even up to 10 is just fine as long as you're there at all times. Uh, so on the new system, I'm running the KH director, so I decided to go with two-part dosing on that, and I'm using the ESV Bionic for that. And uh, again, that's been set it and forget it too. It, it's a it, the uh, KH director is a great product by GHL, and it and it it's just been so easy to use. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm doing both. I've always loved calcium reactors. I think that they, especially on larger economical way to go, and and they just require a lot less maintenance and such. Uh, so on the new tank. I'll be moving the calcium reactor over to that from the, the Red Sea tank when that gets taken down. So uh, going forward, I'll still be doing both, though, uh, on the tanks. So the, um, with, with the uh, GHLKH director, are you, um, and also with the Alcatronic, are you using that uh, not only as a monitor but also as a controller? So are you essentially you know, having certain parameters set where you're saying to um, you know, the, uh, the controller or, or the, uh, the unit, you know, hey, if the ALK gets below or above a certain level, the calcium gets above or below a certain level, change the dosing accordingly. Are you doing that? Exactly, yeah. I'm using the adaptive dosing on uh, the KH director, uh, which is a real neat feature. It, it bases it on percentage. Uh, so you set up your doser. You determine what your ALK usage is in a day approximately. You set your doser to try to match that. And then the KH director will adjust it by percentages as uh, it does the testing. If it determines that it's low, it's going to increase the next dose. Uh, if it determines that it's high, it's going to decrease the next dose by the percentage that you put in there. Um, and it really does. It keeps it absolutely rock solid. It's a, it's a super device. I'm, I couldn't be more impressed. Uh, and I just started using that within the last couple of months here. Uh, the uh, Alcatronic is another great piece of equipment, and, and that controls my uh, calcium reactor. Basically, it turns it off if the alk alkalinity gets too high. If uh, the alkalinity is too low, uh, it has a dosing pump uh, set to, to dose sodium bicarbonate. Uh, so, and that rarely happens on me because my calcium reactor usually keeps up with it. But if I happen to run out of CO2 and don't notice it or something like that, 
the Alcatronic will go ahead and dose that uh, sodium bicarbonate as a kind of a stopgap uh, until I can get my CO2 refilled. Um, but that's been a great machine. I've been using that for about a year and a half now, and it's been pretty much uh, flawless. So. And, and the great thing about the adaptive dosing, um, you know, elements of these devices is that, um, you know, let's say there's a, um, a, uh, a reading that's due to uh, something, let's say air bubbles in, in, the, um, in the line that's feeding tank water or whatnot, and, and you're going to get a bizarre reading. You can actually bake that in, right, to the adaptive dosing and, and you know, essentially say that if there's a, a reading that's way out of range, pretty much ignore it, right, in terms of dosing. Exactly. That's right. And, and that, that's a great fail-safe because uh, the last thing you want to do is leave your uh, aquarium to computers and then have the uh, computer be wrong. You know, uh, there's, there's already enough problems with human error and uh, definitely don't right. need that. All right, so Bill, let's uh, let's go on to lighting. And um, when you first started to keep uh, SPS, were you, were you a, a halide guy like me? I still I still use Absolutely. halides. I can't get away from them, but uh, I'm definitely looking to. Uh, yeah, and you know, quite honestly, uh, to some extent, I wish I could. Uh, uh, where you're at, you of course have the nice cold winters. Uh, here, you know, a cold day in the winter is uh, maybe 60 degrees, and the rest of the year, you know, we get temperatures in. Uh, even next week, uh, it's going to be 108 degrees or so here, uh, and in the summer, it'll get up to 115 pretty regularly. So uh, metal halides, I could run them, uh, but they, they produce so much heat. Uh, there, It is a small room that, that the tank is going to be located in once I wall that off, and uh, so I made the switch over to LEDs. Uh, but I'm also a firm believer in T5s. I've had T5 tanks in the past and had just great success with them. So I figure, you know what, best of both worlds. So all of my systems, including my grow out tanks, my frag tanks, and my, uh, my uh, display tanks, all use the aquatic light fixtures with uh, T5s and uh, Radian G4 or uh, the, yeah, the XR30 G4. So uh, I've had very good luck with the Radian products. Um, they you know, I, I, I firmly believe that halide grows corals faster, but I think that the uh, radians in particular and some of the other high-end LEDs really give you uh, some great coloration that, that sometimes doesn't seem to come out with the halides. And so with the lower heat that they produce, uh, it just made it the better choice for my situation here. But I do miss my, uh, I miss my halides. I ran the, uh, uh, boy, I had... I generally like the 14K uh, is what I had, and I was into the uh, the uh, AB space lights uh, back in the day. Those were really neat fixtures, and so I had the double-ended 250-watt uh, bulbs. But, you know, there's so many good uh, metal halide bulbs out there, and they're tried and, and proven that if you have a, an area where you can do that, especially if you're trying to get good growth in particular, man, you, you know, so. And the great thing with them is they're set it and forget it. You know, you, you don't have to... You aren't adjusting the, the different bulbs to get different coloration. And sometimes I think with LEDs, uh, one of my issues, initially anyway, was there was just too much control. I could do all these different things, and I messed with it so much. Now I don't mess with it anymore. I've settled on what I'm doing, and uh, I basically use, uh, I do about half the day with just all blues. Uh, I find that I get really good colors developing with the all blues. But I don't like to view the tank that way because it doesn't look natural to me. So that's more or less for the coloration. And then I run it on the AB Plus schedule, uh, 
for the other half of the day when I'm in the afternoons, and that's when I'm viewing the tank the most, and when we have friends over, so they're viewing it and such. And of course, that's a that's a wider spectrum, still on the blue side, uh, but it's a proven spectrum to uh, get good growth and good coloration. And now I, I just don't mess with it anymore. I, I and, and move on to other things to mess with. <laughs> How'd you come up with your uh, light profile? Is that just something you developed over time, or did you um, find yeah. one that somebody had that you uh, liked? So I've talked to a lot of different uh, reefers uh, at, at shows, uh, talked to uh, different reefers in my local area, and then, of course, on the, on the boards, uh, Reef to Reef, Reef Central, uh, you know, messaging other successful reefers when I see somebody who has a system where, uh, you know, they, their, their tank looks spectacular, they're getting great growth and things like that. Uh, it's there's nothing like you know personal experience uh, for teaching and and so I reach out to people you know I'll just send them a private message or if it's in the in a thread I'll say you know what are you doing here what kind of schedule you have going and uh, basically that's what it's done it's kind of a, a combination of what I've seen other people doing and having success with and uh, you know again the AB plus spectrum used on the radians is a tried and true spectrum that is used in a lot of places. A lot of the bigger vendor, vendors, uh, like Worldwide Corals and such, they use a modified version of that. And, uh, and you know, it's just something that has, has worked for a lot of people, me included. Yeah, I know it's interesting. There's just so many options out there. And um, I'm definitely going to dabble in LEDs at some point soon. And, um, yeah. you know, it's um, – but, yeah, no, that's, that's good to know. So in, in terms of um, – Nutrient export. What um, what do you typically lean on with that? Are are you a um, do you utilize GFO at all, or are you just basically looking at uh, natural means using a, a fuse or an algae reactor or an algae scrubber? What uh, what do you do to keep your uh, nutrients in check? And and also what what do you maintain like your nitrates and phosphates at? Sure. So uh, I shoot for a nitrate somewhere between five and ten doesn't worry me much if it goes uh, a little bit higher than that, even up to 20 or even up to 30. But I do, ideally, I try to keep it around 5 or 10. Uh, if it drops below 5, then uh, I'm going to increase my feeding as much as possible. Uh, and and uh, I, I run an algae turf scrubber. I don't run a refugium because uh, I, did, I did initially run a refugium, and I have actually had some real nice refugiums that were show refugiums where I had them on uh, but in this setup, I uh, first off, when I started running the refugium, my nutrients got too low, and the ketomorpha that I had in there died off on me. So that happened a couple of times uh, when the setup was new, so I decided to try the algae turf scrubber, and I uh, managed to find a nice one used, and uh, it's been amazing. I, I So now I'm a huge believer in algae turf scrubbers. They are more efficient than a refugium. Uh, the turf algae uptakes those nutrients much faster than, than any of the larger macro algaes will. Um, and they're super easy to maintain. You know, basically once every other week on a Friday, I'll pull my screen out and scrape it off. I get uh, massive amounts. I mean, bottles of, you know, hair algae like this big. And, uh, and, and I just throw it away. Uh, but I do not have any algae in the display tank. Uh, it's, you know, it's amazing to me how... That algae can grow so fast down in the sump, uh, but up in the days of display tank, you know, the, the competition for the nutrients uh, between the ATS and the tank, the ATS wins out every time. So uh, that's actually one of my main uh, methods of exporting. The, um, 
Other, I, I do uh, run high-powered skimmers, but in a lot of cases, I actually skim very dry or sometimes not even pulling anything at all and, and using it more for uh, raising pH and, uh, and oxygenating the water. Uh, I had found that if I really skim, I can bottom out my nutrients very quickly, and that causes major problems, especially with SPS corals. Uh, can definitely lead to uh, dino outbreaks. Uh, and, and other problems, you know. Uh, so I try uh, to really keep my nutrients at a, a, a steady level. For PO4 or phosphate, I keep that uh, right around 0 0.04 to 0 0.1. Again, anywhere in there, I'm fine with it. If it gets above that, that's when I would use some GFO. I don't run GFO normally. Uh, I do have a reactor for it that I can plug in, and, and I have done that. Uh, in fact, recently, I I overdosed on some uh, uh, phosphate and I had to uh, uh, run some GFO overnight and uh, do a water change, but it brought it down quite quickly back to normal levels, so there was no harm done. Uh, the other method I use is, uh, I back in the day, uh, of course, we could get live rock from the ocean, uh, from, from the South Pacific specifically, that was just amazing stuff, and I loved it and wish we could still do that. Unfortunately, really the only live rock source now is, is uh, you know, the Gulf, and it's not really the same as live rock from, say, Fiji and such. Yeah. And so uh, I started all my tanks with dry rock, and, uh, of course, I supplemented with bacteria. Uh, I've also ordered uh, products from Indo-Pacific Sea Farms in Hawaii to get the South Pacific, uh, uh, fla you know, uh, fauna in there and microorganisms. Uh, and, and basically though, I don't really count on my live rock to do a lot of filtration because it is, it's not nearly as porous as, as the old days. So it doesn't have as much room for your uh, bacteria to grow and such. So what I do count on are uh, other uh, biological media and I primarily use Ciparax and also Matrix from Seachem. Uh, I use the Pond Matrix. It's larger, easier to keep in a bag and I'll just put them in, in the, uh, in the web bags into the sump. Uh, the one problem I've run into with the uh, Ciparax is it is made of sintered glass, so you can have some silicates that will uh, leach from it. Generally, it's only at the beginning, but it can cause some diatom blooms. Uh, but overall, both those products have been great for me uh, as far as how you know a, a space for that uh, biological filtration to develop and really. And, and with those products, you're basically just putting it in the system and you're letting it do its thing. Exactly. Yep. And uh, the nice thing is that now that I have a very well-seated and very mature display tank, when I'm setting up these new tanks, like my grow-out systems and such, all I have to do is reach in the sump and pull out a bag of matrix and throw it in the other sump, and I've got an instant mature tank. So uh, I did that for the, the new tank, and, uh, you know, the cycle is already done. And, and uh, of course, I'm being patient with moving things over there. I won't start doing that uh, for a few months still. Uh, but with the grow out tanks and the frag tanks, I was able to get those going right away. And basically it's, you know, very similar water to what's in my display tank. So, uh, it works perfectly. That's interesting. I mean, um, so starting a new tank, basically you're, you're saying that you, uh, primarily start a new tank with dry rock and you use these products to, uh, to seed it, not leaning, not leaning exactly. on uh, live rock to help seed. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a, um, a situation a few years ago where I started my new, uh, you know, 187 gallon tank and I, I started it with the, uh, the Marco dry rock, which is the first time I ever started a tank with, uh, with dry rock. And it was just one issue sure. after another, but, um, you know, 
I, I, I added the, uh, the, uh, um, the Fritz bacteria in a bottle product, but, um, it just wasn't, sure. uh, it, it just wasn't enough. And, and, uh, I had tons and tons of issues with that, uh, tank and got frustrated and, and rebooted it with live rock. I found some actual, uh, live rock down in, um, Orlando in a place called Sea and Reef. They had a whole ton of Haitian live rock, which, uh, was like a big score for me. So I, uh, yeah, I, I yeah. took some home on the airplane, but, uh, had to pay a pretty penny to, to get that uh, <laughs> to, to fly back home with me. Sure. Hey, um, another thing, uh, Bill, in terms of uh, I noticed in your um, in your new tank, and I, I didn't notice in the uh, in the old tank, but I saw some sand in the new tank. Um, do you uh, is that just basically for uh, cosmetics, or are you not really uh, worried about uh, again having that as a, as a as a bacteria bed? Or you just like sand in the tank? Yeah, uh, basically, I'm a huge fan of wrasses, uh, and several of the wrasses that I have, including the uh, blue striped tamarind wrasse that I have, uh, they require sand. You know, they sleep in the sand, and so uh, in order I'm to showing that accommodate wrasse. them, that's oh, okay. awesome. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a beauty. It's uh, pretty much my favorite fish. Yep, there it is. Uh, gorgeous fish, uh, and it's been a dream fish. It's ate the first minute I put it in the tank. And it loves to, uh, you know, eat bugs and eat eat other things that may end up in the tank. So it's a great uh, fish as far as uh, eliminating pests and such. Uh, but I have several fish like that that do require the sand. I also like the look of sand. I think, uh, you know, I, I've done bare bottom tanks in the past, and it's certainly great. As it gives you a lot of ability with your flow and where you can put power heads and such. Uh, which with the sand, I do have to, you know, watch that. Uh, but with the bare bottom tanks, uh, I have found them not to be quite as stable for me. I, I know lots of people are, have great success with that, but uh, and I don't know if it's because the sand allows for more uh, stability with with a bigger biological filter, or if it's maybe just something in my head, so it's psychosomatic. I don't know, but I've just found for me personally, I've had better success when I do the uh, sand bed. I do not do a deep sand bed. Uh, it's about two inches. Um, and I do have uh, sand sifters in there. I've got a pair of Bella Gobies uh, that actually just laid eggs yesterday for the second time. That was neat to watch. Uh, but they keep my sand bed pretty much spotless. And then, of course, I have lots of sand sifting stars and microfauna in there, nasarius uh, snails that keep it all stirred up so that it, it doesn't end up becoming a, a detritus trap. Uh, also, do, you, uh, do you maintain uh, it all? Or do you just lean on your cleanup crew to uh, do that for you? No, actually, that's what I was going to say is on a weekly basis, I take, uh, actually, it's not even a power head. It's actually a, a skimmer pump that I had in my collection. So it's about 600 gallons per hour. So it's fairly powerful. I use that to blow off all of my rock every Friday, and I blow the sand. So I actually get, you know, above the sand, just blow it all over the place. And uh, any detritus that's in there gets into the water column, goes down through my filter floss, and hopefully gets most of it out of there. And so then, you're, you're, uh, running, water you're running the tank, the pumps, and all that stuff while you're doing that so it can get uh, into the water yes. column. Absolutely. In fact, I turn all of the power heads on full at that point. Uh, I also have a couple of the gyre pumps turn those on full. So everything's at 100% and, you know, gets everything suspended, and hopefully most of it goes over the overflow. And then, like I said, I run filter cups in the sump with uh, filter floss that I change out every couple of days. So... Uh, that, that gets a lot of that detritus out of there. And then when I do a water change, I'll vacuum the sump, of course, to get uh, whatever got through the filter floss out of there, too. Bill, I want to go back to um, 
the uh, the algae scrub that you were talking about, and um, you know, you mentioned in terms of what you like to maintain nitrates and phosphates at. Do uh, do you dose nitrates and phosphates at all, or do you essentially just adjust the uh, the light cycle on the algae scrubber and uh, feed your fish more or less depending on what you're seeing, you know, with the nutrients? Sure. Yeah. So what I do is I try to avoid dosing. I do have it on hand just in case. Uh, and what I've tried to do is, uh, basically I'm a huge believer in high import, high export. Uh, and I think the best food for, uh, in particular SPS corals is fish waste. Uh, so I believe in having a very high bio load, lots and lots of fish. Uh, and of course having that biological media like SuperX and Matrix really helps with that. So uh, I have a very high bio load and uh, trying to get that uh, fish waste into the water so the SPS can feed off of it. Uh, and so if I am running low, uh, I will increase my feeding and that's my preferred way of, of raising nutrients. Uh, but if it's really low, if it bottoms out, I don't like to let it go for even a day just because, like I said, the biggest impact that that can have, immediate impact, can be dinoflagellates. And so I do everything to avoid that. So in that case, I will dose. And I'm very careful about the dosing to try to get it into the ranges that I spoke about before. Uh, the other thing that I'll do is uh, I'll, I'll raise or lower the photo period on the algae turf scrubber. Uh, right now I'm pretty well dialed in, which is great. Uh, I do check it twice a week on my nitrates and phosphates on that. On my grow out systems, I'm checking those pretty much every day right now because it's been uh, kind of crazy the amount of phosphate and nitrate that it, uh, that it processes on a daily basis. So I've actually had to dose on those. I'm currently working on getting a few more fish into those tanks so that it, hopefully it'll be a little more on the autopilot. Uh, like the display tank is. But yeah, my main means, first thing I'll do is feed heavier if it gets low. Second thing I'll do is increase the photo period on the uh, algae turf scrubber and then uh, also reduce the skimming uh, if, uh, you know, if I'm skimming at all. Uh, like I said, I always run the skimmer, but a lot of times I'll keep it on a, a real low setting so that it's just oxygenating the water and helping with the pH. Um, but if it is skimming at that point, you know, that's one thing that I can do to, to lower uh, or to, to raise the phosphates and the nitrates. How often too. are you uh, feeding your fish and, and uh, what do you primarily feed them? So I would love to make my own fish food, but I have so many other things that I have to do during the day and it causes such a mess. And my wife just doesn't want me using her blender and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, I feed frozen food, uh, primarily uh, San Francisco Bay brand. I, I use their mysis shrimp and their variety packs uh, and, uh, and then I feed the tank uh, sheets of nori, raw nori in a clip. Uh, but I feed, what I do is I, I have a pretty good sized glass ball jar that I uh, fill up with a bunch of uh, the cubes about every three or four days. Put some RO water in there uh, along with Celcon uh, and uh, Boyd's Vitachem which I think is a great product. Uh, and then uh, let it all melt basically or thaw out and uh, into kind of a, a soup. Uh, and then I use a scoop and I feed uh, the tanks three times a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, once at night. Um, and the scoop holds about, uh, I would say, 50 milliliters. And I'm not sure how many cubes that comes out to, but I calculated it one time and I'm feeding about somewhere around 16 to 18 cubes to the uh, Red Sea tank on a daily basis. So very high amount of food and uh, like I said 
I'm all about import and export. I think that when you can feed a lot of food, not only do your fish stay healthy, uh, but your microfauna, uh, you know, your copepods and amphipods and all your other, you know, little creatures that are helping uh, with the biological diversity and helping keep the tank clean and such, you're just going to have a huge population of those. So uh, that's that's my belief. And it is a little more expensive to feed as much as I do, but I really feel like it's kind of the backbone of, of really, you know, everything that the tank is getting from a nutritional standpoint from me. Do you... Um feed aminos or, or dose other uh, coral foods to uh, to help the, the SBS? Uh, yeah, so I also put uh, refroids in, in my uh, soup, yeah. too. Uh, I put a scoops of that in there. Uh, and again, you know, there's no real evidence that SPS actually feed off of it. I don't know whether they do or not, but I do know that uh, the microfauna does for sure. So again, you know, if, if even if it's not directly feeding, it's feeding that microfauna, which in turn can feed the coral. Uh, and, and so, you know, you got that circle of life going on there. Uh, I also dose uh, aminos. Uh, I use the Brightwell aminos. Um, and I'm actually working on getting that set up on uh, one of my GHL dosers so that it'll be more steady. But right now I do it on a daily basis, once a day. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, I also dose iodine. Uh, I've done a lot of ICP tests and without dosing the iodine, every time it comes back low. So I do dose uh, the Red Sea iodine uh, on a, on a uh, actually twice a week uh, to try to keep that at proper levels. Uh, and I think that's about all that I dose. I don't, I try to keep it fairly simple, uh, you know, and, and I also try to mix a lot of whatever I'm putting in into the food so that it gets broadcast whenever I feed. And since I feed so often, you know, it's, it's getting dosed pretty often too. So. Yeah. I just started making my, <clears throat> my own, uh, fish food and coral food. And, uh, you're right, man. It is a friggin' mess. My uh, my wife was like kind of freaking out on me in terms of what the kitchen was looking like. But uh, I tried to do it when she wasn't home, but it didn't work out. That didn't work out right. that way. All I know is that uh, you know I basically take all the uh, the seafood that I bought in the supermarket and uh, you know it was in the freezer and defrosted it for like an hour or so just to make sure that it was still kind of like held together. And then I started um, you know putting it in the uh, in the food processor. But just like mixing that stuff up by hand, once you get all the different elements in the big bowl, that's freaking cold. But uh, I do, uh, yeah. I do mix yes. in refroids to that um, blend as well. So yeah, I think it is important to to certainly have uh, some 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 sort of supplementation and and um, something that the uh, like you said the microfauna or maybe even the corals can uh, get you know nutrition from. So we, um, we have a question from K-Dub Corals, and this kind of goes back to the early part of our conversation. He says, I'm about to start a new tank with Marco Rock. I do have a good amount of biomedia to, biomedia to add to the sump and some bits of live rock. You think that, do you think that will be enough? I really want to escape with this Marco Rock. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it really doesn't take much of the biological media, the things like, uh, you know, there's a ton of them out now, but you have Marine Pure, you have uh, uh, Brightwell's products. I personally prefer Matrix, Seachem uh, Matrix is mine of choice, and Ciparex. Um But with those, there is, they're so porous and they can host so much bacteria, you can run a tank without any live rock in there. Uh, it's, and you actually need to be careful not to add too much of those biomedias. Uh, when we talked about maintaining phosphate and nitrate, that's another thing that I can do and have done is if, if my nitrates are 
I'll just reach in and pull out one of the bags, you know. So I don't keep it all in one big bag. It's all, you know, in, it basically it's a bag about this big, and I probably have 15 of them in there. Uh, and so I can go ahead and just pull one bag out, and then, you know, I don't have as much uh, bacteria to process waste, so the uh, nutrients will go up that way too. Uh, I found early on with the tank, I thought, you know, more is always better, so I had it all loaded up. And uh, my nutrients were zero across the board. Nothing would grow. Nothing would color up. And uh, so I learned that lesson the hard way. And it's important to make sure that when you have that biological media in there that you don't overdo it because uh, you can have too much of a good thing. But, yeah, shouldn't be a problem at all with that kind of setup. One thing I, I would definitely recommend, if you have the opportunity to get uh, even just a small baseball-sized piece of real live rock that's come from the ocean, put it in there. Uh, also ordering products, uh, like the, uh, the products that I get from Indo Pacific Sea Farms. Uh, that's a great company. They've been around forever. Their website's a little cheesy, but, uh, but it's, it's a, they have, uh, what they call, I think is Wonder Mud and they have Live Sand Activator. And basically it's Live Sand from Hawaii with all the good stuff that comes with it. And you can throw that into your sand bed or into your sump and you're going to be seeding it with actual uh, bacteria and actual microfauna coming from the South Pacific. So you can't get better than that. So we have another question, Bill, from Mostly Reefs. What would Bill do if he had vermitid snails? <laughs> Bill does have vermitid snails, unfortunately. You know, when I set up my, uh, my tank initially, I tried so hard to keep every pest out of there. Uh, and and those were one of the, the things I didn't want in there. Uh, but you know, it's just so hard. Uh, they can hide in so many nooks and crannies and, and I, I dipped everything and I cut the corals off of plugs before I put them in there. But after time, you know, basically I think one got in there that was in a coral and, uh, they've grown from there. Now I do have a, a yellow chorus wrasse and he does eat some of them. So he keeps them in check pretty well in the display tank. Uh, they, and if I see them, uh, on the coral or near a coral's base, uh, I will just go in with uh, one of my uh, fragging forceps and squish them. Um, but at this point, it's just not worth my time to try and eliminate them because I don't think it's really possible once you have them in your tank. Uh, unless you're going to get rid of your live rock and start over uh, as well as, as uh, you know, cutting the base off of all your corals. It's just not worth it. And over time, I, you know, I have some small bubble algae in the tank, but my uh, my tangs and my fox face eat that. So the only place it is is anywhere where the fish can't reach. So it's very small amounts in there, and it just doesn't bother me anymore. Um, but I haven't found a, a true solution to uh, vermitted snails. I when somebody does, uh, if you want to email me that solution, I'd be certainly happy to <laughs> give it a try. <laughs> well, you know, it sounds like you're just managing the problem and it's not really harming anything. So, I mean, that's, um, you know, that's that's the most important thing. Right. Um, and, and I do, uh, when I send out frags, uh, of course, I don't have live rock in my uh, frag tanks or in my, so I don't really have a problem with the uh, vermitted snails in there. But I do inspect every frag to make sure that there's nothing that's going to be on there that might get transported to somebody else's tank. So I'm, I'm very cognizant of that, and, and I, I take pride in making sure that everything is clean when it goes out. So Mostly Reefs is also asking, um, you know, whether or not a tuxedo urchin might happen to uh, be a solution for the uh, for those types of snails. 
So I've had a couple of different types of urchins in my tank, and I haven't found that they that they eat them that I know of. I mean, it it might make sense that they would because their shell is a calcareous shell. So you know, but I haven't seen it personally, so I don't know. Um, I try to keep very small urchins when I uh, do have them in my tank, just because you know they tend to be bulldozers and plow over things, especially newly mounted frags and such. Uh, so I don't have a whole lot of urchins in my tank, but uh, uh, to my knowledge, though, I haven't seen that uh, where anybody said that that was a solution. Uh, if it was, I would definitely have more urchins. <laughs> yeah, urchins scare me because of the way they uh, can just bowl things over, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I have enough uh, issues with the uh, giant turbo snails in my frag tank knocking frags <laughs> off of the uh, racks. Yep. Crazy. Um, <laughs> So we got another question about uh, the size of your aquarium. I guess we're yeah. talking about the new aquarium. Yeah, so uh, it's a uh, it's seven feet long uh, by forty two inches wide by thirty inches high. Uh, it was a tank I could fit where it is. Ideally, I really wanted to go uh, eight feet long by four feet wide, uh, but yeah. that yeah. would have been a real stretch. Um, but I love having the depth in the tank that's just it, you know when it, it's always a struggle when you're when you're uh, aquascaping to to truly get uh, an aquascape that looks like something you'd see in the ocean and most of the time because of most standard tanks the problem is the depth on it uh, getting you know you kind of have to you tend to build up instead of having more of a level structure where you can really get a lot of real estate for frags uh, so on this tank I, I said, okay, I'm going to go double whatever the length is. So, and man, I tell you, I love the look of it. It, it is absolutely beautiful. It is my dream tank, uh, and you know, I don't think I'll ever go bigger. Uh, you never know, but uh, at this point, this you never do know. <laughs> right, exactly. At this point, this is this is it. Uh, and again, you know, anytime that someone's starting a new tank, I will always recommend. Look at your width. See what you can do there when you're measuring out where the tank's going to go. And, you know, if you're putting in a four-foot tank, uh, if you can go bigger than, say, the, the standard 18 or 24 inches on it and get a 30-inch deep tank, or a, or not deep, but a 30-inch wide tank, uh, you know, go with that. And, and you're, you're never going to be disappointed having that front-to-back real estate. It really adds so much to the look of the tank. It's one of the reasons that I, I went with this as a peninsula tank is that you'll get, I'll now have that long view, uh, which I can't wait till I'm able to take pictures of that and such because it's, it's just, it's really going to look like something you'd see in the ocean. I'm an avid scuba diver and that's always been my dream is to be able to sit next to the tank and feel almost like I'm on a dive. And that's my hope with how this is going to turn out. We'll see. <laughs> I totally agree with you about um, the width of a tank. You know, my um, my 225 gallon tank that I had back in Connecticut was uh, 30 inches wide. My current 100, 187 gallon tank is is 30 inches wide. And and before the show, we were talking about um, I, I was thinking about starting another tank like mm -hmm. a, uh, a peninsula lagoon style type of tank and and for that I was thinking six foot long by 36 inches um, wide by 20 inches tall and, and it's it, it's so true I mean you can really do so many cool things with the aquascape right. on a wide tank and uh, I, I, I do the same thing I always recommend to people go as wide as you can yep absolutely Bill somebody is asking uh, whether you have a, an Instagram uh, Instagram page set up or a YouTube channel 
Uh, yeah, I do. I don't have a YouTube channel yet. I do have an Instagram page that I actually just set up. I'm, I'm pretty old school, so uh, I'm just learning that. But it is uh, Epic Aquaculture, uh, so you can follow me on there. Uh, I also have a, a website uh, that is going to go live tomorrow, and that's www.epicaquaculture.com. Uh, that's where I'll be selling my uh, frags online. Uh, also, uh, some of the I have rainbow tip anemone, uh, rainbow bubble tip anemones, and Colorado sunburst anemones. Uh, and then I I also uh, have a, a presence on Reef to Reef. Uh, I go by Saucy Jack zero zero on there. Uh, so if you want to check out some of my tank builds, both the uh, the current display tank, the Red Sea tank, and the new one, I have uh, build threads on there, so you can kind of follow along with my progress. All right. Well, K Dub Coral just is started following you on on on, on uh, Instagram, so you got uh, you got a right. you got another <laughs> follower there. So I was going to close uh, Bill with some rapid fire questions, but I think you've already answered uh, the first one, which is what is your dream tank? It sounds like you're. Uh, you're kind of starting that dream tank right now with this new build. Well, I do have a swimming pool out back that, uh, you know, I might be able to talk the wife into something there. <laughs> that would be a big one. Um, yeah. What, uh, all right, here, here's the next one. And, I, and maybe, uh, maybe you've already answered this question as well. What's your favorite fish? Yeah, so right now it's it's definitely my blue striped tamarind wrasse that you showed uh, earlier. Uh, it's just such a beautiful fish and you really don't see it in the hobby all that often um, but I'm a huge fan of, of wrasses so I've got I think uh, seven of them in the display tank right now I actually just got a flame wrass yesterday that's just gorgeous I, I love it it's in quarantine right now uh, lineatus wrasse is another one of my favorites uh, but you know I, I love all fish there you know there's so many unique types and sometimes you know uh, they may not be the most exciting to look at, but their personalities can be just amazing or their behaviors. So, you know, in the new tank, I'm trying to avoid really large fish because I want to have a, a lot of fish numbers wise so that it really looks like what a real type of pest. Again, I'm a firm believer in dipping corals when you get them in and very close inspection. I use a magnifying glass that has a light built into it. Uh, and I'll actually hold them up in front of uh, a window where I get plenty of sunlight because the sunlight really shows things off. Um, and honestly, if I see something on the, the frag, uh, especially if it's something real alarming, it's going to go into a quarantine tank. I do have, like, I have the ability to set up a quarantine tank very quickly because like we talked about earlier, I can just pull one of my little 10-gallon tanks and throw a, uh, some of the Ciparex from my current uh, sump right into a hang on back filter and boom I've got a quarantine tank so uh, and I'll, I'll dip it you know multiple times until I feel like it's uh, possible that it's it's pest free or I, I shouldn't say possible that I feel that it is pest free or if it just doesn't work out you know I may have to dispose of it so uh, uh, but yeah I've been fortunate in terms of pests way back in the day I was one of the first ones to get red bugs uh, and that was even before anybody, that was back when guys like Ron Shimmick were saying, no, it's just a copepod and, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's not a bad thing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's a bad thing. Yeah. I, you know, so, uh, fortunately, you know, we handle that pretty easily nowadays, which is great, but nobody knew about Interceptor and, and such back then. So it was a struggle figuring that one out for a while, but yeah, I haven't had too many, uh, again, you know, I've been fortunate, and I think with my, uh, between quarantine and my dipping protocols, uh, I've been able to stay away from those kind of dangerous pests. 
So we have another random question. This one from uh, Kenneth Bryant. He's uh, he says, "Ask you about the regal angelfish." <laughs> well, that's that's true. That that he brings that up. That's one of my favorite fish too. I have a regal angel in the tank. I've uh, been very fortunate with that one. It was the first one I tried, uh, and of course they're reef safe with caution. Yep. Uh, he does nip on on, uh, on my zooanthids, but. Uh, he doesn't seem to kill them at all. Um, so, and and there are quite a few of the of zooanthids on. I have kind of garden, I call it, on a on a rock that's separate from the other aquascape, so they don't grow onto other things. And uh, he'll get in there and nip on those once in a while, but he leaves my SPS alone. So uh, he, he's he's a good uh, a good resident, but uh, he's he would be in my for sure in my top five of the fish that I have. He's he's got a lot of personality and a very cool fish. I had one of my 225-gallon uh, SPS dominant tank, and it was my favorite fish. You know, I didn't have anything in there that uh, was, was tempting, you know, in terms of LPS sure. or, or, or Zoellers, but uh, I uh, sorely won another one, but um, I do have a ton of Zoas and, and some LPS. It probably would be uh, pretty delicious to a, uh, for a sure. real tank, but, you know, if I get that new build going, then there, there you hey, go. There you go. That's, there you uh, go. Yeah. There's always a way to figure it out, right? I love angel fishes, and I wish more of them were reef safe. I mean, uh, my favorite angel besides uh, the regal is probably a queen angel. Uh, they're they're such beautiful fish, and then uh, uh, the Navarcus angel or blue girdled angel would be uh, my next one. But again, both of those, you know, definitely no queen angels in in my tanks, and uh, even a Navarcus, that's a pretty risky. Uh, <laughs> yeah, risky there. Yeah, you're you're definitely going out on a limb there. So, uh, so Bill, we, uh, I don't want to like keep you here too long here. We got a couple of more, um, one last question from, uh, from right. the folks watching at home. Somebody is asking, um, any tips for, uh, euphilia not fully opening their, uh, parameters are, uh, DKH of eight phosphates, uh, looks like 0.5. That's pretty low. And, or I'm sorry, phosphates 0.02 and, and nitrates, I think it's at five is what they're, they're saying. But, uh, yeah, they're, uh, any tips in terms of the euphelia? Well, uh, with LPS and euphelia, uh, I, I don't have as much experience with that. I'm primarily uh, into the, the SPS corals. I do have a few uh, LPS um, for the most part, and I have in the past raised LPS in, in prior tanks. Uh, for the most part, they do like the water a little bit dirtier, so your, your nitrates and phosphates are kind of in the range. of. You might want to look at uh, feeding a little bit or adding some fish if you do have the room for that. Uh, if, if it's something that's come on suddenly, uh, check your equipment. Make sure there's no rusting magnets in your tank. Uh, make sure that there's no stray electricity. Uh, you know, I've, I had an issue a couple, uh, about a year and a half ago, where a uh, magnetic probe holder rusted. And, of course, I checked every other magnet in the tank but I didn't think about that and uh, I struggled for about a month to figure out what was going wrong with my tank and finally I said oh, I never checked this I looked at it sure enough it had cracked and rusted and once I removed that and did a few water changes that solved the problem uh, an ICP test might help uh, I personally believe that ICP tests are they're good for kind of monitoring where things are at but because they do take even with the fastest ones they generally take a couple of days before you get the results back things can change in that time period. So I don't think they're great for uh, making changes necessarily, but they can be good for uh, finding things that don't show up on your other test kits, especially things like heavy metals. 
Uh, and when those show up, you, you definitely want to check for magnets that are rusting and such. So check on some of those things. Otherwise, I've always found that when in doubt, water change. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I know a lot of people nowadays try to get by without doing water changes and more power to you if you have a healthy reef tank that can do that. Uh, but man, I'm a firm believer in water changes. On the new system, I'm going to run an auto water change system. I did run one on this, on my current system for a while, but it wasn't real efficient just because of the layout of how I have things. So uh, the new one will work uh, much better. So at this point, I've gone to doing water changes about every two weeks. And I, I've just, you know, whether it needs it or not, everything seems to perk up after water change. And to me, that's just a good indicator that it was a good thing to what do. What percent so. are you doing on a water change? Uh, so I do uh, at a time because that's the size of my uh, my current mixing uh, vessel. I'm going to be uh, upgrading that with the new system, um, and the tank is uh, the display tank is about 250 gallons of total water volume. Uh, so you know that that comes out to a little bit under 20 percent, I think. And uh, and like I said, I'm doing it about every other week though. So that's it ends up being somewhere around 40 percent a month, uh, which is probably higher than most people do, but Again, for me, uh, you know, I use instant ocean salt because it's the cheapest and I've used almost every salt out there and it all seems to work about the same to me. So uh, I believe in that water changes are much more important than spending a bunch of money on a high-end salt. And therefore, you know, I go with the, the instant ocean that I can get dirt cheap uh, and, and then I just do more water changes than I would if I was using a, a high-end uh, salt. Yeah, you know, I was using uh, IO, and I ran into a problem. I guess I had a um, a couple of batches where the uh, the magnesium, the calcium, just really uh, swayed from where uh, where they were at. So you got to really be, um, you know, you got to be diligent. I think in terms of when you, you have your, uh, you know, you're mixing up new batches of salt water, you want to make sure that you're testing the parameters, um, you know, for that new batch before you're putting it in, you know, via water change. Absolutely, and of course, Instant Ocean runs high on the alkalinity too. So uh, I, I have uh, kind of a formula uh, for the amount of uh, muriatic acid that I add to it uh, to bring down the, the uh, DKH to get it down in that eight range. It generally tests around 10 to 11. And so I, I don't want to spike my alkalinity when I do a water change. So, you know, a few milliliters of muriatic acid, which I have on hand for my pool anyway. So it uh, gets it into, into the right range for me. Well, I want to thank uh, Bill Bermucci. I got it right that time, didn't I? You did. I mean, yeah, I should right. I should be one to hack somebody's name. My my name uh, Berkelhammer gets hacked all the time, so you know. I'm sure it's awful. But uh, Bill, man, I want to thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I appreciate you being on the uh, on the show, and and um, you know, good luck with the new uh, business, Epic Aquaculture. You know, you've already uh, talked about where, where folks can find you on, on the web and, and on uh, Instagram. So, uh, yeah, let's do this again sometime down the road. You bet. I also have a Facebook page for Epic Aquaculture, too, if you want to like that. And, and that's where I'll be uh, announcing things like sales. And uh, also, uh, once coral shows get going again, uh, I'll be doing events like that, uh, bringing my frags on the road to sell. So... Uh, but thanks a lot, Keith, for having me. And uh, anytime you, you want to have an update or anything on uh, the new system, you know, uh, when it's fully up and running and hopefully all grown in, I'd be happy to, to update you on that, too. So Cool, man. Sounds good. All right. Well, listen, right. Th thanks again, Bill. And, and listen, folks, I'm, uh, I'm going to be off next week, but back uh, in two weeks. I think that's June 4th. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to have uh, another um, old school hobbyist, 
a fellow by the name of Joe Peck, who I've known for many, many years. He has some kick-ass SBS tanks as well. So that'll be the next episode of Rappin' with the Reef Bum. Until then.